Hi, this is James Walsh, and you're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. The word of the Lord. It is a name that, that well describes us. It is the name that, that most commonly refers to us as the church. And that is the word Christian. And yet, did you know that that word Christian only appears three times in the entire Word of God? Almost always, when a follower of Jesus is being referred to, it's, it's very rarely with that word Christian, but it's w- words like of a disciple, of a student of Jesus's, of a pupil of Jesus's. But only three times that word Christian is used. I find that very interesting. And the very first of these times is, is in the book of Acts, as it says that the disciples were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. And so we see that it's non-Christians who are referring to the church as Christians. Well, the very next time that it's used, we see the Apostle Paul in this private hearing with King Agrippa. And as Paul speaks about the resurrection of Christ, King Agrippa replies, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And the jury's still out if he's asking this as a demeaning question or if he's saying that then in such a short time, Paul, you just might persuade me to be a Christian. We're not sure, but, but he uses that, that name Christian. And the very last of these times is used by the Apostle Peter. And in fact, where we're going to be for, for, for more or less the remainder of our message is in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you would like to read along. There in 1 Peter 4, he makes a statement, and, and he says in chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, and he uses that, that name for the very last time in Scripture, where he says, but it, it, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. I find it very interesting that, that this name Christian, this is not some, some name that the church came up with to describe their own selves, but that word Christian actually originated from the outside churched world by those who had already chosen to reject Christ and who were hostile towards the church. They're the ones who came up with it. And in their minds, this name Christian was the most sinister way, most dehumanizing way that they could fathom, that they could use to describe people who believed and who followed after Christ Jesus. And tragically, this practice has remained until this very day. Where if you don't like the way that a person is voting, you, you use these de- really dehumanizing words to describe them. So if you don't like the way that they, they are voting, you just call them a snowflake. Or you call them a libtard. And that dehumanizes them, and it elevates you above them in the process. And yet everybody here knows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there are far worse 
names than even that that we, we assign to people sometimes. There are a lot of people in this world still to this day who, if they don't like a person's skin tone, if they don't like what their ethnicity is, they will use slurs to really refer to them as. It dehumanizes them, and it means that in their own minds that, that I'm superior as a race to what their skin tone is. As we see this name Christian right here, this is not a pretty word in its conception. But rather, this is, I mean, this is the exact opposite of a term of endearment. Christian, when it was originally used, was used as a pejorative slur. Christian is the N-word of the first century religious world. This is not a lovely word at all in the world. And yet the church does something incredible with this word, though. They embrace this word as if it were a good thing. And their conception of it is, well, okay, they are calling us Christians. So Christians we will be. And we embrace this just like we embraced his cross. Now, in our own day and age, we see crosses on, on all kinds of things, jewelry, on necklaces. But, but in the first century world, it would be like wearing a necklace of an electric chair. And yet we embrace what that cross represented because it is a symbol of our redemption. It is a symbol of the, of the death that we are to die to ourselves every single day. And so we embrace what it meant to be a Christian in those days. And yet still, I find it very interesting that as Peter is really, he's giving a definition to that word Christian. And his definition is not a person who goes to church or who does nice things or who sings hallelujah, praise Jehovah with, with all the melodies in the exact place where they need to be, but Rather, as the Holy Spirit is, is really defining what a Christian is, Peter is defining a Christian as a person who suffers. He's saying, if you want to know what it's all about, to follow in the footsteps of Christ, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian is a person who suffers in severe ways. And in our text a moment ago, in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. It's amazing what we learn when we really learn what these original words meant. Because for a long time, I would read this, and my mind would exclusively go to physical body harm. Somebody who's being arrested or, or even, God forbid, murdered in some way. And yet what this word means is simply to, to, to try and trap somebody. It means that you are harassing somebody in a way that... that you are trying to bring about intimidation. Or it means to ensue somebody with malicious intent. Now all of a sudden, what Jesus is speaking about takes on a whole new meaning in our minds. We see that it's not necessarily always have to be a bodily persecution. But very oftentimes what Jesus is saying here is that it's going to be a psychological assault that this world unleashes upon us. And yet, as we consider that word persecution, there is nobody who ever, I mean, ever had been persecuted more savagely than Christ Jesus. 
We think about how from the second that, that he's born in the manger, his own king and his government is after his head. They have to flee. They have to run off into Egypt for, for a year plus. As we look at what this word is really encompassing, we see the religious leaders and the clergymen and the rabbis, they are, are doing exactly what he is referring to here. They are relentlessly trying to trap Jesus. They are harassing him. They are trying to get all up in his face and intimidate him. They are pursuing him with malicious intent. We remember how on one occasion Jesus was referred to as a man who, who was a Samaritan with, with a demon. And in that climate, in that culture, that was the worst way that you could ever insult a person. If you were Jewish, that guy is a Samaritan who was who demon-possessed. We know that on at least one occasion as Jesus is speaking, people start, start lifting up stones and they try to stone Jesus in the streets. We know on another occasion, they actually try to um, shove Jesus off a cliff. We remember how in, in Mark's gospel, it says even his own relatives are saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus' own family thought that he was insane, that he was crazy. And yet we know that it gets worse than that for Jesus. We know all about how he had been slandered in that illegal courtroom. False charges coming his way. We know all about how he had been flogged and crucified. But, but I think the most beautiful way that Jesus has ever been referred to as in Scripture or out of Scripture is in this song. It's, it's a Michael W. Smith song, and, and it refers to Jesus as a rose that has been trampled on the ground. Jesus knew what it was to be a persecuted soul. And so Jesus makes a promise to his followers. And isn't it ironic, isn't it interesting that, that where we were last week, Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, Jesus, who at his arrival, peace on earth and goodwill towards man, that the, that the Prince of Peace himself gives really the, the opposite of that coin where he says, do not think that I came to bring peace upon the earth. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but, but I came to bring a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father. I've come to set a man against his daughter and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are going to be the members of his own household. Jesus, on another occasion, says to his followers, to his apostles, more to the point, do not be surprised when this world chooses to hate you because way before they ever decided to start hating you they decided to to you know start hating me and this is really what simon peter is saying in first peter 4 where he says do not be surprised first peter 4 is starting in verse 12 he says beloved do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you it's for your testing in other words it is to amplify it is to investigate the reality of your faith do not think that it's that that some strange thing is happening to you but rather he says rejoice to the extent that you partake of christ's suffering that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 
Then he says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, and then he uses the exact same word Jesus uses, makarios, blessed are you, because the spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he says, you are being glorified. And we don't know this in Scripture, but, but then again, we can read between the lines. When these apostles choose to follow after Jesus, you had better believe that they had relatives and friends, people who they had always known growing up, who, who had said, these guys have lost their mind. How crazy are these guys to just in a moment's notice get up and leave their careers behind and just quit their jobs, leave their, their, their wives and their families in a complete lurch and just follow after, I mean, what? I mean, some, some 30-year-old homeless, shiftless carpenter who's always hanging out with these tax collectors and with prostitutes? They actually think that that crazy lunatic was the one who was sent from heaven to save the whole human race. These guys are just idiots. I mean, this was, was what they were up against. Well, a little bit later on, as we, we read in many of the letters and the epistles of the church, more or less in Gentile climates and territories, it would be something like if we were to go to this huge event somewhere in Westchester, and just before it had begun, we see the governor of the region step up and say, and now at this time, everybody stand and let us proclaim Caesar is Lord. And sure enough, everybody stands up and they begin screaming at the top of their lungs, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, and Caesar is God, but you are a Christian. If you do not stand up and say Caesar is Lord, people are going to notice. You can get thrown into jail for this. It will be the end of your reputation in that city. Everybody stand up and say Caesar is Lord, you are a Christian. What do you do? I mean, what are you going to do? We read about another place in Scripture where in this area they, they had a God that they would worship in a, in a temple. And when you would go into the marketplace, the only way that you could buy bread was by showing that you would worship and that you would receive the mark of the beast on your body. But if you did not have the mark of the beast on your body, then you could not buy food for your family. And so again, you are a Christian living in a place like this. What are you going to do? If you don't have that mark of the beast, your family is going to starve to death. Your family might be thrown into a coliseum and be torn apart by lions before your eyes. What are you going to do? You see, there was a prayer that, that I had to stop praying. I heard it all throughout in my childhood in the church. It went something like this. We, we thank you, O Lord, that we were able to meet together today free from any harm or persecution and to have a peaceful worship service. And I could see the well intent in this prayer. It is very heartfelt. 
It is grateful for what God has given to us, all of the wonderful, nice things that we have. We don't want to see our children and our grandchildren torn apart by lions. We don't want to you know, see our, our wives being dragged down the street. I mean, I don't think anybody in here wants to see that. And yet, this is a very American prayer. It's not really a Christian prayer. What I mean by that is that our American way of life is all about comfort and convenience and about luxury. And yet the Christian life, Christianity in and of itself, to this day, pure, undefiled Christianity, that is the most, I mean, I don't even know the words to describe it with. It is the most controversial, dangerous way of life upon the face of this earth. It's only when Christianity had been legalized and, made the, and really made the official religion of the Roman Empire long ago, that it started becoming very soft, very tame, very civilized. It's only when the church went from being in the living room and on the street corner into cathedrals that it became very professionalized, very formulaic, and very ritualistic. Well, I grew up with that my entire life. And yet, Amanda and I moved to China in 2009. And at first, I mean, it was euphoria. I mean, it's just like, man, we are in this new country and it's just so fun and everything is just brand new to us. It feels like we are in a brand new you know, universe almost. And yet, I'll never forget sitting in a restaurant in our city in Wuhan, China. And I'm just looking around as it, I mean, just hits me right between the eyes man, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This no longer is shining my shoes on Sunday and making sure that I'm hitting all the right notes as we sing Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah. We could get arrested for this. They could throw us into jail because in China, you can have a Christian church out in the open. I mean, it's okay to do that. But the communist government steps in and says, if you're going to have a public church, you, your first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth love has to be to the communist government. Your God has to be China and communism. And then maybe, maybe 500th on your list, you can say a few things about God and you can sing a couple of songs to him and meet together if you want to. Well, if you don't want to do it that way, guess what the only other alternative is? You've got to have an underground church inside your own house. And the government looks on Americans and Chinese having a Christian service in their homes as illegal as Americans look at a crack house. And I'll never forget how when we started meeting together, all of a sudden there are, are, are these hidden cameras being installed right outside our house, and they're monitoring who's going in and out of our apartment. I'll never forget when we would meet with our house church, as we had had communion very quietly with each other, sitting very closely to each other, as we sung Chinese hymns like, Mi che da mucha 
，生命的许下，我的牧人人都不神医。As we're singing, we know in the back of our heads that at any moment, those doors could be barricaded, and 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 officers with machine guns and 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 lasers on our heads could come. Running inside our apartment, we could all be be handcuffed and being hauled off to jail. And yet, those our Chinese brothers and sisters, especially, know in the back of 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 their own heads that at any moment those doors could come open and we could be hauled off to illegal work camps for four or five years at a time. They would see to it that we would never get a good, high-paying job in our lives. And I mean. You spend a year in a place where it's illegal to to do what we're doing right now, and yet then I came back to America and and we went to a service and and I was asked to lead the closing prayer and about six words in I just start sobbing on the microphone because we were in a place where where they were worshiping flippantly. It was very nonchalant. Just you know, let's just get this over with. You know, let's just get to the ball game. And, uh, I'm so tired of this, you know. And and it just breaks your heart that you guys have no idea what a blessing it is to be a Christian. And there's just something I don't know what it is, but. But as long as the church has ever existed, there's just something about persecution that makes the church explode and multiply. In the book of Acts, I mean, really, where it starts taking off is when when Saul leads a violent persecution against the church. If you look at the world today, really, the nations where Christianity is is multiplying is in Africa, China, where it's illegal to do it, and where it's dying seems to be in our neck of the woods. I remember what Jesus says in Luke six twenty six, where he says, "Woe to you!" Really, it's the opposite of what a beatitude is. Jesus gives a denunciation of grief, where he says, "Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way." I had to learn this as a young minister. When I was a young minister, I thought, you know, I I had dreamed all the time about what it would be like. I would wake up on Sunday morning and. I would be speaking to forty thousand people, every one of them hanging on every syllable that I said. Look, look, the preacher is here. The preacher has something he would say. Let us hang on his every word. That's not exactly how it's like in the real world. I mean, I understand that. I thought everybody was just going to adore me. <laughs> A couple of people adore me. I'm grateful for that, but, but. If every single person is singing our praises, Jesus is saying something's wrong with that. In other words, if you truly follow after me, if you you practice these beatitudes, there's going to be people who have all kinds of negativity of which to say about you. I remember how Jesus says to his apostles that that I'm that I'm about to suffer. I'm going to be nailed to a cross, and Simon Peter says, "Never, Lord. I'm not going to allow you or us to ever suffer something like this." And Jesus looks right in Peter's eyes, and very strong words. He says, "Get behind me, Satan." Peter, you sound just like the devil right now. You don't want to suffer. 
You don't want me to suffer? I don't think Peter meant to be the devil. But Peter just got in his heart the things of men. Just like I get in my heart the things of men. Just like, like you on occasion might get in your own heart the things of men. He says, no, I'm going to that cross. I'm embracing all of those tears and all of those false charges. I am, I'm going all the way to it. Ananias is told, Ananias, go and see Saul because I, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And suffer Saul did. 195 lashes, we're told. Roughly 160 more lashes than even Christ got. One occasion he is stoned, either to death or, or very close to death, but, but he jumps up and he goes right back into the city and preaches Christ three times louder than he did before. It's the same exact man who writes in Scripture that it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. He writes in another place and he says that, that, that it has been destined to us to suffer persecution. He he still writes in, in yet another place that, that anybody who desires to live godly will suffer a persecution in some way. And yet again, my whole life, I thought it was just a bodily harm that a persecution was. But the biggest bombshell of my entire life, or Amanda, you can ask her, is that even though we lived in a year breaking the law every single day in a communist country, not, not one time were we ever in a persecution in China. Not once. But the only place that, where Amanda and I have ever been persecuted is not in a communist nation, not in an atheistic society, but in the Lord's church. We need to remember that it was self-righteous religious people who were the ones who were persecuting Jesus, not pagans on the streets. It was people who were very legalistic who had persecuted Jesus and the apostles. And I want to let you know that that is still going on in the world today. Because if you dare to practice these Beatitudes, rather than American Church Convention, where it where it clashes with it. If you dare to consider your one and only home in the kingdom of heaven rather than in America or in American politics, if you dare to associate and to love the kind of people Jesus had lunch with, if you dare to, to enter us-against-them conversations and start humanizing those other people who they're going off on, and you try to establish what their own viewpoint is and what their own perspective is, these individuals who they hate, I can guarantee you that you will be insulted. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be ostracized. You will suffer persecution in that sense. And it might just be the person sitting next to you in the pew. Or it might be the person who is going to, to a congregation across town. Who is, do, who is doing the persecuting. And then sometimes, maybe once in a blue moon, it might be a non-Christian. Yet, yet I find it so interesting that the ones doing a lot of the persecuting are religious people in Scripture. Yet having said that, we need to establish something. It's what I refer to as manufactured as a persecution. Because what persecution is not 
is walking through the world with a chip on her shoulder, you know, saying, I dare you to knock this, this you know, Jesus block off my shoulder. I dare you. I double dog dare you. Sometimes it's possible to have a persecution complex where we're not really suffering persecution, but, but we're more or less creating it in a very unnecessary way. I remember a few years back, there was this huge controversy at Starbucks where a minister walked into a Starbucks at Christmas time and he looks at his cup and it does not say Merry Christmas on it. And so he begins a campaign against Starbucks saying that Starbucks is anti-Christian. Starbucks hates Christians because I bought a coffee cup and it does not say Merry Christmas on it. You see, this is not persecution right here. This is a persecution complex. Starbucks is not a Christian business. Rome is not a Christian universe. See, sometimes it's possible to, to bring a persecution on our own selves. And yet, I've spoken here before about a church called Westboro. They are the people who go to all kinds of events and who hold signs like this. Or like this. And I see things like this, and what, what goes through my mind is that it's like you want them to lash out at you in anger. You want them to strike back with you so that you can say, oh, oh, we're being persecuted. I mean, you should be persecuted if you're doing things like this in God's name. And I am tempted to be the one who does the persecuting on you if you do this in public. This is not real Christian persecution right here. This is something else. See, this is why in our text, the Apostle Peter says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. Let it be because of the light of Jesus Christ that this, you know, others just cannot accept. Never bring it on your own self. And so we see not everything is persecution. Really, the basis, according to Jesus, about what real persecution is, is that it's got to be, the, or it's got to be for the sake of righteousness. It must not be because of hate or because of ignorance. And also because it must be because that we are practicing the ways of Jesus. And the ways of Jesus are, are what is causing others to um, lash out in those ways. And I think again about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you, when men ostracize you and insult you, when they scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. But notice what he says, it's so beautiful. It's so counterintuitive where he says, Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Jump for joy, he says, because your reward, it is great in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, all of these beatitudes, this is not normal human behavior, is it? I'm being insulted by, by you know, whoever it is. I'm being ostracized. I'm being ridiculed. I'm being slandered. Yes! It's for the name of Jesus Christ. See, what Jesus is introducing us to here is that being, 
is that being maliciously treated for imitating Jesus, that is a winning lottery ticket that we are to absolutely leap for joy that we have in our hands. When we're ostracized, when we're laughed at or scorned or slandered, you would think that the acceptable response and etiquette would be the taking up of arms, would be the serving of a lawsuit to that person, would be lapsing into despair or completely quitting living for Jesus just to make all of it stop. Yet Jesus says, when people speak against you in this way, you can be happy about this right now. You could have actual joy blazing in your heart and in your soul. And this is what we see the early church doing. I mean, exactly. Where in the book of Acts, the apostles have been jailed. They've been beaten black and blue. They are writhing in pain. They are, are warned that if you ever speak the name of Jesus Christ again, you're going to get much worse than we just gave you. But when those doors burst open and those guys come through that door, they had just have the biggest smiles on their faces. You would have thought that they just won a jackpot lottery. And after calling the apostles in, they had flogged them and ordered them to never speak the name of Jesus. And then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as being the Christ. Again, you would think that when we go through something like this, it doesn't even have to be bruises or, or jail, but, but just somebody who we've always known who now hates us because of the Christian life. Any way that, that we are spoken out against because we are trying to, to genuinely follow Jesus you would think that our response should be to just hang our heads in shame. And yet here is more of what Jesus has in mind for us. In that ritual, it was to talk about what people were begging to be invited. This went on at one weekend. I didn't get in until one in the morning, and the place was swinging. Two was at the piano. Sonny Greer was at the drums. Andy Klein, blowing trumpet. Florence Brown was there. Bonnie Bigar, Harry Carney. And I walked to this boy that joined you and jumped. Duke turned his head and said, Jump for joy. I said, That's it. Why don't we do a show with others? Jump for joy. And Bill Burnett, they write up some more. Just count me in. Johnny Garfield, count me in too. And before you know it, everybody's pledging money. <laughs> What Jesus says is that when you are persecuted, when you're insulted, you are a blessed, blessed person. You are to be envied of all the people on the face of the earth. You are to jump for joy and God is looking down on you and he's saying, that is my son, that is my daughter, and in them I am well pleased. And I know that it's not always a big smile on our face when we go through stuff like this. But I find it interesting that the only other place just about where that phrase, leap for joy, Jesus uses, is used again. Is when Elizabeth is with child. And as Elizabeth hears about 
Christ being conceived. It says John leaps for joy inside of her womb. It might not always be a smile on our faces, but there is something birthed within our souls, deep in our bones, that even then can still jump and explode in joy. And that something is called the Holy Spirit. See, instead of seeking revenge, instead of going to court or, or being mad at the world or whining or completely giving up on Christ, Jesus is saying, jump for joy. Because when we live joyfully in the midst of persecution, of insults, what this shows the world is that it casts a new spotlight on the cross that, that this is not just some pious religion of mine. But this is something that is worth losing my life over. This thing is worth dying for. The reason why Jesus says we can jump for joy in these times is because any Christian who is suffering never suffers alone. Jesus says in the same way my apostles and prophets are going to also undergo this. Christ himself underwent it. We are in good company. But he also says that, that the reason why we can jump for joy when, when others speak ill of us is because great is our reward in heaven. You see, this whole world could be standing against us all at once. We could lose everything that we have in this world, even our own lives, and still have everything in heaven. See, our home in heaven is something that nobody in this world can take away from us. So as we bring this to a close this morning, what I want to, to challenge us all with is this phrase, don't be surprised, expect the resistance, and jump for joy. It is the most courageous, scariest thing in the world to really live the Beatitudes in this world, even in church culture. Don't be surprised if people take offense. Expect resistance. And when it comes, oh Christian, jump and leap for joy. Maybe we need to ask ourselves this morning, am I practicing Christianity? Or am I just another slave to churchianity? Am I willing to bleed for this thing? Or am I just playing church? Are we the ones who are willing to actually die surrendering to his will? And we just need to remember that word Christian or as I like to refer to it as the C word. That is not a term of endearment. Christian is a slur. Christian is a synonym for suffer. But as we live his Beatitudes, no matter how unpopular it is to, to authentically imitate, no matter who tries to discourage you from expanding and living in, in those Beatitudes, don't be afraid but rather embrace it. In fact, when it comes, don't be surprised. Wonder in your mind, what took so long for this resistance to come? Don't be afraid and jump for joy.